The development of the doctor-patient relationship has never been as important as now. Technology will not replace this important aspect of care. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Colgan. Dr. Colgan is Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and also the author of the successful book, Advice to the Healer on the Art of Caring. First of all, to begin with, what prompted you to write this book and for what audience? Thank you, Maurice. I've always been interested in medical history and humanistic medicine and patient-centered medicine. And in the 15 years I was practicing in my local town, seeing patients and what they put up with in their lives and how I could help them, I found that the stories of patients and my interactions with them to be the most rewarding. When I came to the University of Maryland School of Medicine, I had a great opportunity to spend time teaching medical students and residents, and I found myself repeating some of the many things over and over again that I'd come to learn by my look at medical history and reflection on some of the patients I'd seen in private practice. You know, as you stated, encouragement is so important for a physician to give to his patients. Do you see students getting the idea how important even a touch may be at an appropriate time in their care? Yes, from a select number of role models who also value this symbolic gesture. I I once asked a student, do you think you can teach the art of medicine? And this student paused for a while and then replied, no, but I think you can learn it. And I think what he was referring to is that the art of medicine is that which we glean and we observe from other mentors, role models that we look to emulate. Students must learn this from us, their mentors, their teachers. I emphasize to my students that more often than not, I use the stethoscope as a tool which enables me to touch the patient. Specifically, I tell them that I'm not listening for a rumble or a click, but rather the stethoscope is really an excuse to apply a laying on of the hand. So I think, you know, the touch is very important, of course, appropriately and respectfully and in the right circumstances. I think a touch on the shoulder or the hand can be very powerful if done properly. I've been struck by first, second-year medical students that there really is a difference in what I would like to call emotional quotient. We talk about IQ, but there's an EQ as well. Some students seem to get it right from the start, and others really need a lot of mentoring. Have you noticed this? I have, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we all come to acquire in our lives different skill sets. I just met with a student today, for example, and this was a a wonderful student who had an upbeat, positive uh, personality and disposition. She made it clear she wanted to spend her life caring for others in a rural practice and serve the underserved, and her eye contact was fantastic. She smiled appropriately throughout this uh, interview, and, you know, I thought to myself, I mean, this is the kind of student I would love to take care of me one day when she became a doctor. And conversely, you know, I think we've, we've met on occasion people, be they in medicine or elsewhere, whom we, we might say, gee, this, is not, this person's not my cup of tea. I've always been struck with my own personal career. When I got into my career, it was not uncommon for me to see other physicians, physicians' families, and even on occasion, 
professors who had been my professors. And I wanted to say to them, didn't you know I wasn't first in my class? Didn't you know I wasn't second, third, fourth? Am, am I fooling people? But when I thought about it, as I got more mature as a physician and began to pick my own physician, I wasn't picking the first, second, or third either. I was picking the person who I thought had EQ, as you say. So I think we've all learned this lesson. What do we want when we come to pick our own physician? Should we alert physicians, even senior physicians, and students in particular, that the last patient of the day may be the one most in need? I certainly experienced this. You know, I've heard it said that, particularly in ER or urgent care settings, that oftentimes the, the mother who bursts through the door five minutes before the closing of, for example, an urgent care center or a doctor's office that has a walk-in center with her child in her arm is the one that's most in need. And I think this is true. I'm not sure that this particularly applies to an office where we have scheduled appointments and there's not an ability to work in acute care patients. But to your point, I think the message here is when, when you're getting ready to put on your hat, so to speak, you might be when the patient actually needs you the most. And our patient's needs are not aware of our own time constraints. So I try to be very mindful of that. And in fact, one of the stories in my book, Advice to the Healer, is called He Apologized Twice. And it's a story about a patient who, as soon as I walked in the room, he stood up, he extended his hand to me and said to me, I'm sorry I was late. I won't go into the details of the story, but I was just totally taken back when at the end of the visit, as I stood up, which is a doctor's cue that the visit is over, and he stood up. Right before he left, he said to me again, I'm sorry I was late. And it just struck me, it was so powerful that this patient who was not as advantaged, perhaps, as I thought I was, was going out of his way twice to apologize to me for being late, and it really taught me an important lesson. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Colgan, author of the book, Advice to the Healer on the Art of Caring. You know, you mentioned something just now, standing up being a cue, and they've investigated the length of time between what is called a poor communicator and a good communicator, and often it's a very small time. In some studies, it's as small as 45 to 50 seconds. So there is an art to making people feel that you're a communicator, not reaching for the doorknob, uh, and are moving from foot to foot or looking at your watch. Do you tell students this kind of what one would call art? Absolutely. First of all, I think you have to value good communication. You have to believe that it's important and really mean it. It would seem obvious that we all do, but our actions may not support this. And actually, there's an interesting research done by Michael Kahn in Boston entitled Etiquette-Based Medicine, where they did a study to look to see to what extent do patients appreciate empathy on the part of their doctors, and they were surprised to find that empathy was important, but what patients really valued was a doctor who was kind, civil, and polite, and who exhibited certain behaviors which they appreciated. So I think, first, you must be a good listener. You need to wait and allow the patient to tell you why they are here. We need to force ourselves to not interrupt our patients. Of course, we need to use non-medical terms. When we're done, ideally, we should ask our patients, tell me what you understand I just told you. The chairman of my department, whom I look to emulate, likes to end his visits with each patient, asking them to summarize for him what it is they're going to do 
to take better care of themselves. He wants them to leave with a list of things for them to both understand and to do, and I think this is brilliant. Lastly, I try to end each visit by asking my patient, is there anything else I can do for you? And almost invariably, they pause, they look around the room, look up at the ceiling. Within seconds, they reply, no. But I believe on their drive home, they're likely feeling pretty good about the fact that I asked. With dementia becoming such a major problem in our culture, people have written exactly what you're describing, asking them to paraphrase what you've just said to them. A nod, a yes or a no, may not really communicate anything. But if you ask your patient to rephrase what you just told them, you often will be shocked at what they know and what they don't know. So that that's a very good clue that you've just said that uh, I think could be valuable in our aging population. In your book, however, you talked about Paul Farmer, a great person. Are we lax when we talk about two young healers, about the responsibility that they not only have to individuals, but also to a global society. I think every physician also is an unofficial public health officer. Farmer lives this role admirably. Each of us are unique in learning something from a patient and being apprised of the effect it could have on the public at large. I've diagnosed meningococcemia in a child and helped alert our community to that risk. When I was director of student health here at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, we had a student with meningitis, and we were able to alert the student community about that risk. But a story I love to reflect upon is the story of the British obstetrician John Snow, which is certainly worth remembering. Dr. Snow was an obstetrician. He believed that contaminated water was causing cholera in London in the mid-1850s. And between 1830 and 1854, there was reportedly tens of thousands of people in England who died of cholera. Well, Snow meticulously showed that those who drank from the Broad Street pump contracted cholera as opposed to those whose water supply was outside of this catchment area. Workers from a brewery on Broad Street, for example, did not contract cholera because they drank the liquor from their own establishment or water from the brewery's own well. None of these workers contracted cholera. So I think these are really brilliant examples of opportunities that we have in that so-called confessional. You know, that when that door closes, it's referred to as a confessional. Patients will tell us some of the most intimate details of their lives. But we also learn in the exam room things for which make us perhaps raise our eyebrows and wonder if others could be involved in just my patient. You talked about being a good communicator. Could you summarize, as you did in your book, some of the really salient points that you make to young doctors about being a good communicator? You've already touched on some of them. Well, some of the things I try to do is to encourage that we begin by listening. We establish, first of all, the proper relationship. I think that can begin with knocking on the door first for permission to come into the room. If you're in a hospital room, if a patient's in a hospital bed, asking for permission to pull up a chair and sit alongside them. Having your ID badge or your identity very visible and evident to the patient. I've seen many patients look for my shirt pocket to see what my name is. I think to let the patient know clearly up front you know, who you are, why you're there, because many times we see patients for the first time in the hospital and they're not sure what part of a member of the team we are. Using good eye contact is important. I like to try to reframe or repeat back to the patient that which I think I understood them saying, give them a chance to edit it. 
I'd like to try and end the conversation always with, is there anything else I can do for you? I've had patients ask me, yeah, can you validate my parking card? I mean, you get some funny answers, but I think it lets the patient realize that you're really looking to put the ball back in their court, as it should be, that you're looking to allow them to have the last word. I think when appropriate, it's appropriate to extend your hand and and shake that person's hand, you know, thank them for the time that they've given you for this visit. These are some behaviors which I think we could use to show patients that we respect them, we're wanting to be civil and polite, and that may on the surface come across as being silly or not needed. There's an excellent book by P.M. Forney that I, I reference in, in my book, Vice of the Healer, and Dr. Forney's book is called Choosing Civility. You know, it's amazing in this day and age in our society how many people are in need of improvement of their civility, and that definitely goes for those of us in the healing professions. In closing, it's sometimes more important than knowing the disease is knowing the patient with the disease. And what would you comment just before we leave today on this? I think it's easy to characterize a patient as that man with pancreatitis in room four or the alcoholic in room six or the person with sarcoid in room 12. That is probably one of the worst things we can do because it really refers to them as a disease state, as a condition, as a disorder, and not as the person whom they really are. I think all of us, if we're truly honest with ourselves, will admit there are times in our hustle bustle a day when we can look to try and maybe be more efficient with our time. But I think it's so incredibly important to force ourselves to pause, to stop, to take our own pulse, and to remember why are we here? What are we doing? One of my mentors here at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Dr. Frank Kalia, used to teach us focus on the patient. We've heard other greats throughout history tell us how important it is to keep the patient as the center of all that we do. Perhaps the greatest quote in the last 100 plus years that exemplifies humanistic medicine would come from the Boston educator Francis Weld Peabody, who said the secret in the care of the patient is the care for the patient. I think it's important for us to remember that and to become grounded and to realize that we are here as a privilege and that we are so fortunate to have the opportunity to help so many people who are so dire in need of our help. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Colgan. I, I can't imagine a better way to end our talk. I really appreciate it, and I encourage people to read your very thought-provoking book. Thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard. If you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.